ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. If you've tried to get your car fixed lately, it's highly likely you've just had to wait. Wait to get into the mechanics or for a part to arrive in so the workshop can get that job finished. It can be very frustrating. But industry leaders say these wait times to get a tradesperson or get a trade completed points to a much larger problem. No longer content to be the lucky country, Australia must become the clever country. Former Prime Minister Bob Hawke pushing for more students to enter into the so-called brain-based industries. All these years later, some people in industry think Australia has become too book smart for its own good. In my view, there's an army of people in universities that should be on the end of a spanner or a chisel. They shouldn't be in university, they're more suited to trades, but they've been convinced to go to university. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajuk Country, Perth. We start in Townsville in the north of Queensland, where this afternoon strong winds have started to build as tropical cyclone Kiralee approaches the mainland. The system is forecast to make landfall as a Category 3 cyclone when it crosses the coast later this evening. And our reporter Lucy Cooper is in Townsville. Now, Lucy, what are the conditions like right now in Townsville? Well, it has been for quite a number of days really eerie. It's been incredibly humid, very hot. Um, You know, it might say that it's 30 degrees, but it feels like 36 and not a whisper of breeze. So it's... It's been really, really difficult. And then, you know, today, just as the day's gone on, that heat's kind of been broken by just, yeah, that rainfall. It's just started to pour down. Looking out the window at the moment, you know, it's incredibly grey. We've got the winds picking up significantly. It now feels very realistic that a cyclone will roll through Townsville. Like you said, there was that build up and people had time, particularly this morning, to make, you know, what would be last minute preparations at that stage. What has the community in and around Townsville been doing to get ready? Yeah, well, it has been incredibly slow moving and that's what we saw with Cyclone Jasper as well in December. So it's given a lot of people time to prepare. So really, all week we've seen those preparations take place, starting with sandbagging and, you know, taping up windows. People have been really good, actually, with the supermarkets, buying what they need. Um, you know, I was able to find water myself um, late yesterday afternoon. So all of those things still in good supply. And then yesterday we saw those kind of um, identification of areas that were at risk, the coastal the tiny tiny coastal towns that were at risk um, around Townsville, they're called um, one called Kungulla. People there have been identified as living in a you know potential flood risk region, and the authorities have been going around there door knocking, asking people to evacuate, and then sandbagging if people have chosen not to. Lucy, given the experience of Cyclone Jasper, have have many people decided to leave the region? No, in true North Queensland fashion, they've been through cyclones before. They'll go through them again. Not many people really have left the um, left Townsville at all. The airport was fairly quiet this morning. Um, yeah, cars coming in and out of town. It's, it's, it's a little ghost towny, really. No one's picking up and, and moving. And, and, yeah, most people know that uh, what it is like and that, yeah, they'll, they'll just sit, wait it out, really. Lucy, this is a Category 3 system. How much rain, though, is expected? Is there concern with flooding? 
Well, it is really difficult to know. The Bureau has kind of been giving us some estimations. They're, you know, they're looking for rainfall 100 to 200 metres to fall, some areas hitting 300 millimetres. At one point, 1,000 millimetres has been thrown around as a potential, but not at all at this stage are we looking to a metre of rain in in one kind of setting. It's, It's really looking that higher percentage chance upwards in that 70 kind of percent range. We're looking at 100 to 200 millimetres to fall, which is still significant, you know. Um, But what's really interesting with this cyclone, it's been incredibly slow moving. And then this morning we've woken up and it's just picked up its pace. So that system is due to keep moving. So it's not going to have that prolonged cyclonic rain as we've seen with past cyclones. Now, you've taken the time to chat to farmers in the region. I imagine many of them would be happy with the rain, but are they worried about flooding? Again, you know, North Queensland farmers, not much can phase them. It's just incredible. They've, they too, you know, about a week to prepare, putting away machinery and also just doing earthworks on their farms just to make sure that water flows in a certain way. And yeah, as you said, I spoke to a lot of graziers saying, uh, you know, are they concerned about their cattle, about this or that? And that, well, they just said the wet season hasn't been that great. So they're really excited for for the rain and, and what that may bring. Again, I've, I've brought up the fact that the rain is only coming because of a cyclone and they're, they're, they're mildly unfazed, which is always just really how agriculture mm. works up here. But that's crazy as, you know, we do have so many other industries here. Cane farmers in particular, they've planted, they're seeing a great crop come through, which will be harvested, you know, mid to um, mid this year. And so they are actually concerned. You know, cane farmers grow in low-lying areas um, because they love to conserve as much water for their crop as as possible. It's a very thirsty crop. And so, yeah, I spoke to one cane farmer, uh, Lawrence DeBella. He's, uh, he's in Ingham, which is just north of Townsville. And, yeah, he said that flooding, he's on the banks of the river, and he said that, yeah, flooding's definitely a concern for him. It's the possibility of a flood event. Floods probably have significant, a bigger, bigger damage on the on the farming community here, especially if we have uh, days and days of rain. And at this stage, they're telling us we are going to get uh, at least a week or so of rain. Uh, we've just come out of a whole heap of rain since Jasper, so we've had a heap of rain in the last two weeks. So we're pretty saturated, pretty wet at the moment up here, and it may get wetter from what we've been told. Lawrence DeBella from Ingham speaking to our reporter Lucy Cooper. Now Lucy, boating is hugely popular in North Queensland and you've also been out and about speaking to boaties what, and there was one in particular, what was he doing to prepare? Yeah, I headed down to the marina this morning to check on all the boaties. They were all out and about. The marina is being closed in Townsville tonight and they aren't recommended to stay on their boats. I, I checked in with John Lynch. He's a marine pilot actually over in WA. So he does a bit of a FIFO situation and he lives on his boat here in Townsville. Um, he said that he has, because of his experience of being a marine pilot and previously a ship's captain, of course, he's been through a number of cyclones, but he's never been one through with his boat and it is in a marina. But he said there's always cause for concern. It is quite frightening. We had a direct hit when we were living in Dampier only a couple of years ago in Cyclone Damien, which is an upper level category three. And that was frightening, absolutely frightening. So don't, don't enjoy that at all. No matter how many storms you've been through, you should never take them lightly.
That's Boaty John Lynch and there's no doubt that's true. Anyone who's been through a cyclone, you never take them for granted because you never know what's coming your way, do you, Lucy? Of course, North Queensland have many island communities um, and places like Palm Island. How are they preparing? Yeah, well, Palm Island is Australia's largest remote Indigenous community. There's over 4,000 people there. They do not have a um, cyclone, you know, place of refuge. And so their key policy is to stay indoors. The Palm Island CEO has been speaking to the ABC throughout the day, giving us updates because we are particularly concerned about, um, you know, the, the island and everything. And he said that there's some places there on Palm that are really exposed. And so he's gone around with police and local rangers. They've done a lot of door knocking. And those people who are particularly vulnerable, they've moved them into the local motel or the friends and families there. And they got additional food and fuel um, with the, from the barge yesterday. So, yeah, the Palm Island CEO, um, Michael Bissell, he says that they are actually really quite prepared. The picture you're painting does seem that people are very prepared. What about the evacuation centres? Are people making use of them? Well, no, not really. Heading along to one today in Townsville, it only had nine people there. Um, it had been set up by the council and they were yet to provide chairs to these nine people. They were sitting on cement in an underground car park, in fact, in Townsville. And so whilst we understand a lot of people, you know, they've been asked if, you know, you have friends or families to stay with to do that. If you're in a low-lying area in Townsville to move to higher ground to, yeah, stay at accommodation, some people we know can't afford that. And so they've been offered up evacuation areas. But, yeah, we've only seen... Yeah, nine people sitting in an underground car park. So, yeah, not too many people making use of them at this stage. Lucy Cooper in Townsville. We'll keep in touch as the whole situation with Cyclone Curly evolves. Thanks for talking to Australia Wide. Thank you. ABC Australia Wide. Experts say critical worker shortages in child safety in regional Queensland are delaying response times and putting kids at risk. In central Queensland alone, there are 22 vacancies for child safety officers across Gladstone, Rockhampton and Emerald. In an attempt to bolster the workforce, the state government will announce an increase to the graduate salary. But experts don't think that'll be enough to keep kids out of harm's way. Scout Wallen has this story. Growing up, Rockhampton local Zali Whitman's first-hand experience with bullying made her determined to work with at-risk kids. I realised how important it was to get involved sooner rather than later and how that can really set up your life ongoing. The 23-year-old worked as a child safety support officer for the year up until her graduation at the end of last year. Her role was to support child safety officers, known as CSOs. It was just a little bit hard to have those really in-depth conversations because we were trying to get through our caseload so quickly. According to the Australian Association of Social Workers, most states and territories have a best practice threshold of about 15 kids per worker. But Zali says the caseloads in Rockhampton were much higher than that. And it's just a little bit unrealistic um, for someone to take on that much work and also do the best we can when it comes to putting a social work lens on things. According to the Department of Child Safety, there were 22 vacant positions for CSOs between Rockhampton, Gladstone and Emerald as of the start of January. Jan Paschal, the head of the College of Social Work at CQ University, says these issues have been plaguing child protection services for decades. So when you've got a high churn of staff, as in people coming and going because there is burnout, 
um, then you get the additional problem of lack of experienced staff or lack of senior staff or lack of staff or stop. So then the implication from that is the social workers that are left on the ground have well, will take longer to assess and longer to respond. A leaked report from May last year showed that child safety staff believed their workloads were unsustainable and problematic. An ABC investigation last year into the deaths of Darcy and Chloe Conley pushed the issue of Queensland's child safety capacity into the national spotlight. Chloe, Darcy and their mum were known to Queensland's child safety department. So why, despite multiple warnings, did the department fail to prevent the deaths of the two toddlers? Jan says that when you have such a high number of vacancies, there is a risk that services aren't being delivered. In my mind, if the services aren't there, then children's well-being, family well-being would be at risk because they can't access the services that they need. And that's when you start to see the horrible situations that do make the news when children die in care or die before care can come there or, you know, seriously injured. And we hear about, oh, social workers should have responded quicker. We need to have, like, resources that are both financial as an incentive and as as fair remuneration, but we also need to have staff. In order to draw more people to the job, the state government has announced a pay increase for graduate child safety officers. Starting salaries will increase to between $94,000 and $103,000, plus 12.75% superannuation. Jan says although this is a good idea, experienced staff is what is needed. I think is excellent, don't get me wrong, but it's a short-term incentive. According to Zali, if this was in place when she was looking for her grad role, she would have considered staying. It's something that we discuss at team meetings, we're there to make a difference, not for the pay. And although Zali says she won't return to work in child safety, she believes the staff do incredible work with the resources they have. Sort of causes a catch-22 because the only issues I found was the high stress because of low staff. However, if we just have staff, then we would all have a very fair caseload and the ability to get to things appropriately. Zali Whitman finishing off that story from our reporter, Scout Wallen. Australia is in the midst of an energy revolution as ageing coal and gas generators are rapidly replaced by renewable power produced by wind and solar. It's driven by economics and a desire to avoid the worst effects of climate change. But in Victoria, it's prompting questions about how disputes should be handled when the need for clean energy clashes with environmental concerns and the concerns of landowners. Recently, the federal government vetoed a Victorian government plan to set up a wind turbine assembly plant in the port of Hastings, which would have serviced Australia's first offshore wind zone off the Gippsland coast. There are ongoing disputes with landowners who don't want high voltage power lines on their properties. Our reporter, William Howard, recently caught up with dairy farmer Andrew Balfour, whose family property has hosted high voltage power lines for more than half a century. Probably wouldn't want to have a house here and I'd spoil your view, I'd reckon. It'd be a bit like that show, The Castle. Dairy farmer Andrew Balfour's property has been in his family for decades and it was home to transmission towers long before he was born. But that doesn't mean he likes them. Been here for 50 or 60 years, I presume. They were put in when my father was younger and they cleared the land. I think they're happy to get their land cleared from all reports, yeah. Situated in Willow Grove in Victoria's East, 
Mr Balfour's 500 hectare farm accommodates 900 dairy cows and seven transmission towers. Harvest time, you've got to be careful on tractors and mowers and that sort of stuff. And when you're fencing, sometimes you get a bit of a current along the fence lines that run parallel with the transmission lines. So you've got to make sure they're earthed out before you start tying the wires up. But the dairy farmer's main concern? His succession plan. We've got three boys that are all interested in farming, yeah. So, and they're all, a couple of them are working here at the moment. We will need more dwellings for them to move into. The location of transmission lines through the middle of the property means it will be difficult for the father of three to find a suitable location for each of his children to live. Yeah, on this 200 acre title here, yeah, it would be a great spot to put a house, but you'd be looking straight into a transmission tower. Victoria's current energy grid was designed in the 1950s to connect electricity from coal-fired power generators in the Latrobe Valley to homes and businesses. As these coal-fired power stations are switched off in favour of renewable energy sources like solar and wind, new infrastructure needs to be built to ensure the lights are kept on across the state. The controversial VNI West Line and Western Renewables Link will see 500 kilovolt high voltage transmission lines constructed through farmland from outer Melbourne through to the New South Wales border. While it's a prospect many impacted communities are unhappy about, Professor Andrew Blakers from the Australian National University says the not in my backyard argument just doesn't stack up. I think they need to get over it. The 80% of the population who lives in urban areas puts up with clutter all over the place and people who live in the Hunter Valley put up with awful open-cut coal mines. We need to move on from the questions of minor visual intrusion and just get on with the job. It's economically a good idea, it's technically very straightforward and environmentally it's overwhelmingly positive. In December, Federal Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek vetoed a proposal to build a wind turbine construction terminal at the Port of Hastings, citing clearly unacceptable impacts on the port's surrounding wetlands. Jane Carnegie is the Vice President of Save Western Port. Ms Carnegie says she is thrilled with the decision. Tanya's decision, I think, highlights the importance of these Ramsar sites. And it's a really important decision that the Federal Minister has made because I think she recognises why we need to protect these areas and to ensure no further degradation. The Port of Hastings sits within Western Port and the entire area is protected by the United Nations Ramsar Convention. We're standing here in one of Australia's most important Ramsar sites. Ramsar sites are international sites based on their importance as wetlands, as major wetlands, as feeding systems for wading birds, for migratory birds, for fish and other species that depend upon these wetlands that you see before us in order to survive. But is this enough to warrant the stalling of a key renewable energy project? While Professor Blakers believes it's important to consider the environmental impacts of renewable energy infrastructure, time is running out. We don't live in a perfect world. There will always be trade-offs for everything. In all of this, the evidence has to be followed. The evidence of the benefit from large greenhouse gas emission reductions versus the cost of the local environmental degradation that, that might take place. Professor Blakers says one tool which could help governments choose appropriate locations for renewable energy infrastructure is a heat map developed by ANU. The technology identifies sites across Australia that are 
or are not suitable for wind and solar projects. The high-resolution map takes into consideration a number of factors, including proximity to existing transmission networks, available solar and wind resources, and environmental constraints. Professor Blakers says technology like this could ensure governments avoid choosing the wrong location in the first place. Fortunately, because Australia is a large country, there are very, very many places to put solar and wind farms. Generally, you can find places quite close by that would be suitable for a solar wind farm or a transmission line. Australian National University Professor Andrew Blakers wrapping up that story from our reporter William Howard. Mechanics and panel beaters across the country say a lack of apprentices and long waits for parts delivery are pushing out wait times for repairs into months. And I think we've all been at the tail end of this. Industry leaders are calling for more emphasis on trade pathways and schools to help fill the thousands of job vacancies in the automotive trade. But many say wait times will only get worse before they improve. Jason Katsaris has more. Workers at this panel shop in Wodonga, in the north of Victoria, have their work cut out for them. Staff grind, sand and hammer out damage on the dozens of cars that line the workshop floor. Outside, in the tow yard, a rotating roster of about 100 cars sit waiting for their turn to be assessed, ridden off or repaired. Manager of the body and paint shop, Dave Rogers, says in the last 12 months, his team has been under the pump. I've been in the business 35 years. In the last 12 months, it's the worst I've ever seen it, and I don't like operating like it, but I've got no choice. Around Australia at the moment, there's just not enough repairers to meet the demand of, of the cars. With so much demand, even minor repairs can take months to complete. Dave says this has led to staff being verbally abused from customers. It's only going to get worse before it gets better and maybe it's up to the insurance companies to educate their policyholders up front to let them know what the delays are and instead of leaving it up to us, right, and for us to be the ones that cop the abuse when their cars are not ready and the delays and I think that's a little bit unfair. All areas of the automotive trade have become more technical as cars have evolved and Dave says replacement parts ordered from overseas can take months to arrive. It could be anything from uh, two weeks to three months. So since COVID, it got a lot worse because everything was... Everything was shut down and nothing was getting made. It's like with an airbag. I, I waited 12 months for an airbag for a BMW, right? Because they won't airlift. They won't airlift that stuff out. It all comes by sea. It's not as though we're repairing cars like we did 30, 40 years ago. These cars are so sophisticated now. You got to know what you're doing, and, and things take time. Like half these cars that come in, we quote them. Like we can't see the physical damage until we actually strip the vehicle down. Then if there's extra parts to be ordered well, then that delays the car even further. Dave's been looking for an apprentice for three years and says the biggest problem with delays stems from a lack of staff. The industry's not regenerating. We've been to some uh, trade things that the schools and that have put on and kids aren't even interested in our industry. It's a familiar story, according to Victorian Automotive Chamber of Commerce CEO Jeff Gwillem, who says the industry is not attracting enough young workers. Panel shops, general mechanics, dealerships, they all have problems with a general skill shortage. Now, it's not just us. If you go to the UK, you go to Europe, go to North America, there is a, a big gap in the number of people that are coming into the automotive industry versus the number of people that we need to repair cars, remembering that the car fleet grows every year and consequently you, you need a bigger workforce and we've got a, an army of baby boomers that are you know ready to leave the industry and 
go and spend their retirement savings. In 2021, a Motor Trade Association of Australia report found 52% of automotive businesses were experiencing a shortage of skilled labour. The report found there was a skilled labour deficit of 31,143 positions nationally. Mr Gwillem says he expects that number to be even higher in a report due to be released this year. In my view, it all started uh, when Bob Hawke said we need to be the clever country because what that did, it sent a signal out to the community that if you don't go to university, uh, you're not clever. And I think that was a turning point where parents really favoured their kids going to university. In my view, there's an army of people in universities that should be on the end of a spanner or a chisel. They shouldn't be in university. They're more suited to trades, but they've been convinced to go to university. The Federal Minister for Skills and Training, Brendan O'Connor, said many young Australians falsely believed the only pathway to a career was through university. He said the government's committed to delivering 480,000 fee-free TAFE places in areas of priority in the economy, which includes mechanical technologies. It's little consolation to Wodonga resident Chris Cornell. He was told in December there'd be a seven-month wait to have his car repaired. It's, a, it's an older car, but it's my pride and joy. This morning I said, why is it taking so long? And they said, we've got 300 cars to do, and that's, that's why it's, you know, these time frames are blown out. Jason Katsaris there reporting, and that is Australia-wide for this Thursday. I'll be back again with you tomorrow. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you're having a lovely evening. Cheerio. ABC Listen.